Father in heaven, we thank you. We're grateful that you were with us in the waiting, uh, that you call us to your promises, points us to this harvest of your love. And so as we come to your scripture this morning, God, we pray that your spirit would fill this place. God, that you'd quiet the distractions, help us to focus our attention on you. That you'd speak to us, draw us closer, mold us, and help us respond to the love that you've so beautifully shown us in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. Morning, church. It's good to see you all this morning. I trust that your Sunday is off to a good start. I'm so glad to have you here with us to worship this morning. I want to begin, as I do from time to time, with a little bit of an update for our church. Uh, I like to do this every once in a while just to to continue to share a little bit about where things are headed and and some of the things that we've been discussing uh, as a church family. And specifically this morning, I want to talk to you about some of the things that we set as goals and started striving for back in April, specifically this, this reference to 220 and 200. And I want to give you some context to that, especially if you weren't with us in April or you're a guest with us today. But this speaks to, excuse me, the vision of our church. And whenever I think about talking about the vision of our church, I tend to think of three different things. Uh, We we often refer to it with these phrases. We want to be disciples who make disciples, right? That that we want to live into this identity that we're followers of Jesus. And, And as that Uh, moniker of being a disciple, we are called to also invest in the lives of other people and and make disciples. And that's a huge part of of who we are. Uh, And that's a huge part of our church. That's the foundation of everything that we want to do here. Now, out of that foundation, we have a couple other things that we pursue when it comes to the vision of this church. One is that we want to be a place for healing, right? And, And part of that is to create a culture here at UBC where you don't have to come here and pretend. Uh, that often is some of the things that we see in, in the world of church is that you show up and you kind of have to act like everything's together. And what we want to do is create this safe environment, an authentic environment where you can say, man, I, I need healing. I'm, I'm struggling with this. My marriage is, is not what I thought it would be. I've got uh, some estranged relationships in my family. I'm struggling with all these different things. And you can say those things here and, and find a place that people will walk alongside you and point you towards healing. Right? That's another huge part of what we're trying to create. And then the third piece was that we want to be a people who love justice. And when we talk about that, we're talking about all the different um, injustices and, and expressions of oppression that exist truly around the world. And that what we want to do as a church is we don't want to withdraw from the world. We don't want to insulate ourselves and create some form of a Christian bubble and hold the world at a distance. We want to be a light that shines, right? a light that shines in the darkness. That's the sort of church that we want to be. And so So those are three elements that really kind of capture the spirit of the vision of our church. And so when we were talking through uh, things this past April, we came up with some very tangible and practical goals to help us strive in those directions. And that's where the 220 and 200 comes in. The two references being a place for healing. And and we talked about uh, this idea of being able to launch this renewal ministry and to have two groups, both a men's group and a woman's group, so that we could truly offer to people, hey, if you have something that that is going on in your life and you just need to pursue renewal, you need to pursue healing, we've got that for you, right? So when I asked you earlier, what season are you in? If there's any of you out there today that thought, yeah, I I really could use some renewing in my life. I've got these sorts of burdens. I've got these sorts of struggles. And we have this ministry that is launched on Wednesdays and it has been so 
awesome to see men and women dedicated to that. And, and it speaks to our opportunity to truly invite you into those things. And so as you head into this Advent season, if that's you, we want to invite you to come experience that renewal. Come allow this to be a place of healing for you. When we talk about 20, we're talking about being a people who love justice. And, and what we specifically started striving for was to have 20 individuals or families who would stand up and advocate for foster care and adoption. And uh, we've loved seeing that. And part of that is because uh, when you consider all the different ways that you can try to go and make a difference in the world around you, there, there are so many different options. But we zeroed our efforts in on foster care and adoption primarily because children that come from broken homes, that, that is a common denominator that contributes to so many additional ills that we see in society. And so not only can we follow some of the biblical mandates that we see in scripture, but we can really help address a multitude of issues by welcoming children into a home and a loving family. But part of what we've shared throughout that journey is that there are so many different on-ramps to do this, right? It's not just one. And so we've talked about all these different ways that we can advocate for foster care and adoption. We've had at least two large group meetings that have exceeded the 20 that we've aimed for. And so many cool things are, are being birthed out of those conversations. We do have young couples that are saying, I wanna, I wanna foster, I wanna adopt. We had one couple not too long ago that just got approved for placement and we hope to share their testimony soon. We have another church member who said, I wanna be involved with CASA. That's a court-appointed special advocate, which is a huge part of advocacy in the foster care system. We have another young couple come forward and say, we wanna start this love ministry where we can gather supplies that we can help provide to families once they have a foster child placed in their home because a lot of times they don't have those things readily available. We have another, a uh, lot of folks that have gone through the foster care and adoption system and they wanna be mentoring couples for those that are just now entering into it. Other groups of folks that have said, we wanna help provide uh, childcare and we wanna be certified as babysitters. We, we have uh, one person not too long ago come to me and say, hey, I love photography, I'd love to gift my services by providing free photography for families that are going through foster care and adoption. Right? Time and time again, we're seeing all these different ways that you can advocate. and We can celebrate the, the way that more than 20 folks already within this church have stepped into that goal. But when you think about 220-200, without question, probably the more ambitious of the three that we laid out there was the 200, which speaks to discipleship, being disciples who make disciples, and praying for 200 baptisms. And when I, when I talk about this, I wanna make sure that we understand the philosophy because numbers, I think, are important, but I also would say they're a byproduct, they're never the main goal. Does that make sense? Or like if we understand the really heart behind it, it's not just to put a number out there for the sake of achieving a number, there's a, there's a greater point and purpose behind it all. And our philosophy in establishing that goal is that if we're truly gonna take seriously this call to be disciples who make disciples, then what does that look like? And there was one question I kept kind of asking myself. We looked at the makeup of our church and we had uh, a little more than 200 households that were consistently engaged and involved in the life of our church. And I thought, is it unreasonable to ask every household, right, whether that's an individual, a couple, a family, for every household to say, you know what, we're gonna invest in at least one relationship. Somebody in our life that we know is maybe far from God or going through something difficult, we're gonna invest in them and through the course of our relational investment and loving on them, is it reasonable to assume that at some point that individual would want to give their life to Jesus, start following Jesus, and mark that decision with baptism? And in my mind, that's, that's not unreasonable. And so if we each do that, then we should see at some point 200 baptisms. And so that's where we put the goal. Now, a couple of disclaimers, because you've heard us talk recently about having a baptism service next week. 
And, and I'll share more on that here in a second. But the reality is, is that we, we put those things in front of you as a way to keep the conversation going. Uh, but one of the things I've said is that this is not about church membership. So it's not like these baptisms have to take place here in this baptistry, right? We've seen people baptized in pools, in lakes, in their home churches. Like we've seen it in a lot of different places. And we wanna meet those specific needs. If somebody wants to wait until they have family members in town, we, we'll, we'll do that whenever it needs to take place. So if we have that opportunity next week, we'll do it. If we need to postpone it, we'll postpone it. But the reality is, is that we wanna create those opportunities to meet people where they are. And here's, here's kind of the cool thing. Uh, up to this point, and just to give you a report, we've had at least 13 baptisms, I believe, take place through the life of our church. And we do have five or six that have already come forward in the pipeline that are awaiting baptism soon. Now, I don't know if that we're gonna be able to pull that off uh, next week. But that is close to 20, right? What is that, about 18, 19? We're on the cusp of 20. So you might hear that report and go, well, Jeremiah... 20's a long way from 200, buddy. You, know, you need to add another zero to that report, and, and that might be how you hear it, and I understand that. But let me tell you something. Last year, all of last year, we had eight. The year before that, we had six. And we're on the threshold of 20. Praise God. Can I get an amen? Right? Because it's not about a number. It's not about a time frame. It's about you and me living into this identity of disciples, having an opportunity to invest in the world around us, having people the chance to, to find healing, to, to fight for oppression, and to live out the people that God has designed us to be. And when we get the chance to do those things, whether it's re renewal or whether it's with adoption or foster care, or whether it's up with the, with the uh, ordinance of baptism, it's an opportunity to declare God's love. Right? I mean, that's really what baptism is, and that's why we want to celebrate it, is the opportunity to say, it, we have people in their lives saying, I love Jesus, and I'm going to give my life to him. And that declaration of love is such a great thing to behold. And that's really what we want to celebrate. And, that, and that's kind of where I want to start to transition on that update, as well as to kind of get us ready for the text we're going to look at today. And I want to do this by asking you a question uh, that kind of correlates to this subject matter. I'm, I'm curious, where do you find meaning in life? Like, where do you find that sense of purpose and fulfillment? Through what lens do you see the world? And so this is an interesting question. In fact, Pew Research just released an article back in November 18th of this year where they asked that very question to 19,000 people across 17 different economies across the world. Right, so a great representation across the world. And here's what I loved about this survey that they released was that they asked it open-ended. It was fill in the blank. So it wasn't, where do you find meaning? Here's your list of options. It was just tell us. And they got a tremendous amount of responses. I brought a chart that's really impossible for you to read, but I'm gonna go ahead and show it to you. Everybody got that? You in the back? You guys can see that pretty, pretty easily. Let me just go ahead and reference a few of them for you. The top three, family, occupation and career, material well-being. Okay, those were your top three. And I, I brought the chart just so you can see the overwhelming amount of people that chose family as the number one way in which they find meaning and fulfillment. Now, just out of, out of context, I want to point out that second from the bottom is where you find faith and religion, okay? Now, I'm not showing this to you to show that disparity, um, though I do find that interesting, but look at the long list. People find meaning from friends, from physical and mental health, society, freedom, uh, hobbies and recreation, being outdoors, I mean, romantic partners, service and all these different things. It's a long, 
list of ways that people find meaning and significance. What's yours? Like, where do you most find fulfillment and meaning? The reason I wanted to show you that long list is because I think they all have something in common, right? Ultimately, what I believe they all have something in common is that uh, all of those are expressions and avenues with which we are trying to fill our life with love, right? Like, like if there was a supreme emotion, a supreme desire, a supreme experience, it tends to be love, right? So if I can love what I do, if I can love comfort and luxury, if I can love the outdoors, the more I get those things, then, then the better I'm going to have a chance to experience this feeling and this emotion of love. That's what they all tend to have in common. Now, the reason I would submit to you that family is at the top of the list across all the societies is because what we all know is that love is most powerful and most fulfilling when it's reciprocal, right? To recognize that love is a two-way street. It's not one direction, And so it's really hard for a career to love you back. It's really hard for money to love you back. But if you can find a family, that's where you begin to experience not just what it means to love, but to be loved. And that's really powerful. And so when we begin to understand that aspect of love, right, that love is not just something I want to show, but also something that I want to receive, and it's this reciprocal nature, one of the questions that I want you to ask yourself this morning is, how far are you willing to go to show someone or something that you love them? Like, to what extent are you willing to demonstrate that love? Let me give you an example. Uh, I've been at this church about five years, and when I decided to come here as pastor, there were a lot of conversations in our home, and somewhere along the way in those conversations, Jennifer looked at me and she said, yeah, it sounds great, we can do it, but if we're doing it, we're getting chickens. To this day, I don't know what owning chickens has to do with being a pastor, Uh, It was a conversation we'd been having off and on for a while, and I guess she saw it as an opportunity to leverage that discussion and negotiate a little bit, and so I agreed, and that began the journey of us owning chickens. Now, I'll tell you, when when we came to that moment, I agreed with it. I supported it. Um, I don't know that you could ever categorize my response as one that was thrilled with owning chickens, and so, for example, I said, look, I'll, I'll build the chicken coop. It's fine, but I did tell her. I was like, I just want you to know, though, I'm, I'm not going to feed these birds. I'm not going to water these birds. I'm not going to bury these birds. Like, this is your thing, okay? And so that was kind of the way. And the reason I said that to her is ultimately because I don't, I don't love chickens, right? I wasn't doing this because I love chickens. I was doing it because I love my wife. And so to what extent has that played itself out? Fast forward five years, a couple weeks ago. I was in my backyard getting ready to clean it up for a little gathering that we were going to have, and I was over on the side of the house where we keep the chickens, and as I walked around the side of the house, I noticed that two of the chickens were no longer with us. Such is life when you own chickens. And so I'm out there, I'm like, okay, I need to dispose of these birds. And so the first one was pretty easy, but the second one, not so easy, was in the coop. And when I say it was in the coop, it wasn't just like in the coop where I could reach in and get it, right? And it wasn't just in the coop where it was like maybe further back to where I could get like a stick or something and and kind of pull it out. No, it was like way back in the coop, stuck between the chicken wire that we had used to fortify the coop from predators, okay? So the only way to get this chicken remains out of the coop was to crawl into and squat in the chicken coop. Now, I don't know the last time you've been in a chicken coop. 
It's not pleasant. Doesn't look pleasant, doesn't smell pleasant. It is not a pleasant experience. And so here I am, and I'm not just in the coop. I literally have to pry open the chicken wire and remove the remains of the chicken. And the whole time I'm doing it, I'm thinking to myself, this is how much I love my wife. I don't love these birds, but I love her to the point that I'm willing to squat down in a chicken coop and remove the remains. Okay, now that's That's an example of many that she or I could offer to the other one about numerous moments in our marriage where we have gone to great lengths to show we love the other one. And so how far would you go to show that love to someone else, right? To what extent would you be willing to demonstrate it? And part of what I love about our message today is that it draws us into this reminder of the lengths and the extent to which God has gone to show his love to us. And the more we reflect upon that, then the more that question becomes that much more important. To what extent are we willing to show our love to him? And when we do that and it becomes reciprocal, what we'll discover is that it doesn't matter what season you're in. It doesn't matter if your family is good or bad, your career is good or bad, your money good or bad, doesn't matter because when you discover the love that Christ has for you and you reciprocate, you find the deepest and richest love you'll ever know. And you'll be reminded that his love is always enough. And so let's look at that together. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. All right, we'll take a look at this this morning. We talked about this section of scripture last week, introducing our Advent series. This is uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which is famously known as the Christ hymn. It's a beautiful, eloquent description of Jesus. And last week, we kind of set the tone by looking at verses 1 through 4, And and I'm not going to reread those this morning, but I do want to just resummarize part of what Paul uses to introduce this hymn, right? It's an invitation to unity through the lens of humility, right? So the the call is, uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, consider others better than yourselves, looking not only to your interests, but also to the interests of others. That was the call. That was the invitation. That's the tone that Paul establishes in writing this letter that leads to this Christ hymn. This call towards humility. And it's almost as if Paul is saying Jesus is the best example of how to demonstrate that sort of humility. So verse 5 is the transitional statement that we talked about last week. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude as Christ, right? That was, that was kind of the invitation, and that was a question that we asked ourselves. Is that true for us? When you think about your relationships with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, your neighbors, your colleagues at work, do you carry the same attitude as Jesus into those relationships. That was the challenge that Paul was extending, right? Demonstrating both looking back to verses one through four, that that's an attitude of humility, but also verse five serving as a bridge as to what was about to be described. So we also looked at verse six, seeing that Jesus was the very nature God, yet didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. As we worked through that particular verse, we were talking about the idea that, that Jesus didn't try to seize this godlike nature to be used for himself. Rather, he gives it away. And, and that was the main thrust of last week's message, that in God's very essence and nature, we see this portrayal that it is better to give than to receive. Right? And that was the essence of God's character and nature. So we build upon those ideas today. Today, we're going to be looking at verse 7. I'm going to again read verses 5 through 11, but As we read through it, focus in on verse 7 because that'll be what we talk about together. Let's pick it up in verse 5. 
It says, in your relationships with one another, you have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, so verse seven is where we're gonna focus our time together today. If you look at verse seven, there are three distinct phrases that are offered, three clauses that we'll structure our time together with today. It says that he made himself nothing, by taking the nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Right, those are the three things I want us to visit, and we're actually gonna go in reverse order. Okay, so I wanna start with the statement in verse seven that he was made in human likeness. So this is a very critical statement, and it pairs very well with what we talked about last week when Paul says he was uh, the nature of God, right? Being the very nature of God. And, and last week when we talked about that statement, we, we affirmed that one of the consistent teachings in Scripture is the divinity of Christ, right? That Christ was fully divine and that that is an incredibly important aspect of the gospel, right? We can never steer away from that because it's clearly taught in Scripture, but it's also very important to understand the gospel itself, right? The reason Jesus has to be divine is because if his sacrifice on the cross was going to take away our sins, it had to be a perfect sacrifice, if he's not divine, then he's not sinless. And so if he is a sinful human, then his sacrifice on the cross is not perfect. Therefore, it is not acceptable to God, thereby allowing him to extend his mercy and grace. But because Jesus was divine, his life was perfect, the sacrifice was received and satisfied by the Lord, therefore grace and mercy is extended only through the sacrifice of Christ. Right? So that divinity is Critical. We also talked about that divinity being critical because it shows us that God is a God who reveals himself, right? Jesus is the fullness of the deity in bodily form, according to Colossians. He's the exact representation of God so that when we look at Jesus, we have an opportunity to better understand our creator. We're not just looking at some man, we're looking at God in the flesh. And so we see this affirmation that Jesus was fully divine. Then you get to verse 7. And you have this reference also to be made in human likeness. And another foundational aspect to this gospel is not just that Jesus was fully God, but fully human. And that's an incredibly important piece. And so I want to do something similar that I did last week. And I want to just once again remind you of how consistently this is taught in Scripture. I'm going to read to you a lot of different verses. We have them up on the screen, I believe. You can just kind of sit and listen. And as we read through this, it should first and foremost, once again, affirm the consistency with which this is taught in Scripture. But I also want you to listen to the reason. Like, why was this important? So let, let me pick up. Let's, John chapter 1, a familiar one at this point in season of the year. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's, here's a great part. Verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. 
1 John chapter 4. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. A couple from Hebrews that really bring it to light. Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Okay, so that, that run through of scriptures, and there are others, demonstrates once again just the numerous times that we see this affirmed in the scriptures. But in addition to that, we get some explanation, especially in those verses in Hebrews. The, what we see is that by Jesus becoming fully human, he understands our temptations and our weaknesses. Like that's, that's a really remarkable thing. He was tempted in every way. He experienced suffering. He experienced pain. He experienced all the emotions. He stepped into the plight of humanity in this broken world. And so here's why that is significant. Here's why that's important. Right, when we go through seasons of life where we are overwhelmed by our own weaknesses and we're overwhelmed by temptations and we have those feelings of loneliness, of depression, of guilt, of shame, of mistakes, of failures, fill in the blank. Right, the inevitable part of life, when we go through those things, sometimes our tendency is to run from God. Right? We carry those, those feelings and those emotions and those hurts and those weaknesses and we run from him because we're afraid either, number one, we're going to get judged and he's going to condemn us or we're afraid he's not going to accept us and he's not going to love us and so we run and we try to hide and conceal. But the fact that Jesus took on flesh, we get this incredible description in Hebrews, he can empathize with our weaknesses. And so what we discover is that the scriptures teach us, and because Jesus was human, it, it calls us that you can take all of that to him, all of that pain, all of that guilt, all of that shame, whatever it is, and what you find is a God that says, I understand. I understand it. Do we recognize how incredible that is? He understands your hurt. He understands the guilt. He understands the temptation. He says, I get it. You can bring it to me. We have that assurance because Jesus was in the flesh. And he was willing to step into the plight of humanity, all of our weakness, all those temptations, all that suffering, because he was willing to go to those links to show us how much he loved us. Now that is complemented by that second phrase, again, going in reverse order, that he took on the nature of a servant. 
So the word take on means to add to. It's not like he was replacing something he was adding to, and that adding was the nature of servanthood, which was also translated as slave. And so you think about the aspect of Jesus' ministry. It doesn't mean that he kind of disguised himself as a slave or just had the appearance of a servant. No, he actually embraced the full nature of servanthood. And when you look through the ministry of Jesus, you see that on display time and time again, whether it's through the healings and the constant attention that he gave to those who were needy, those who were poor, the fact that he chose poverty instead of wealth, all the different things that you see in his ministry. You think about the fact that he said in his own teaching, in his own words, I didn't come here to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You think about those powerful moments where he gets on his knees and he washes the disciples' feet. He models time and time again the character and the nature of servanthood. And the reason that's very important is because of what that says for us and for our lives. Now, I want you to follow the logic for a moment, okay? If we believe that there is a creator God and he reveals himself through Jesus and that through Christ we have a chance to better understand our creator, then when we look at his life, we get a chance to see how life is intended to be lived. We get a chance to see how it was designed to see where you find the greatest sense of meaning and fulfillment. No doubt, there are a lot of times we can misdirect those feelings and, and try to find meaning in the wrong things. And as a result, we get a cheapened and, and a more shallow experience of love and meaning and fulfillment. But if we were to look to the way that we were actually created, right, that's where we find greater purpose and significance. For example, right, just to, to try to speak into this, right, like think about a phone, your, those devices we carry around in our pockets, right? You can use that for a lot of different things, right? You could use it for paperweight. You could use it for a coaster. You could use it as a weapon, right? None of these things would be very effective, but they would work to a certain extent. But it's not what it was designed to do. It was created to be a phone, right? It was created to make you waste all sorts of time by just looking at it and scrolling back and forth, right? Especially when your football coach leaves unexpectedly, you know. 20% increase in screen time this week. I was like, thank you for that reminder, right? That's what it's designed to do. And so the more we live our lives in alignment with how we were created and designed, the greater chance we're gonna find fulfillment and meaning. So Jesus taking on the nature of a servant tells us you were designed to serve. You're gonna find greater fulfillment, greater purpose, greater satisfaction, greater love when you give yourself in service to others. What a gospel. You think about all the different ways that you can shape your life, all the different things that you can follow. What an incredible opportunity to believe that there's a loving God who would go to those links to reveal himself that gives you that grace, gives you that forgiveness, gives you that hope, and then calls you to demonstrate that same sort of love to others. What a way to live, and I assure you, it's where you find the greatest fulfillment and the greatest source of meaning. And so he takes on this nature of a servant. He's made in human likeness, and all of this is, is built out of that first phrase that he made himself nothing. That, that's a very important phrase, and another way to, to, to translate it would be that he emptied himself. And it's a phrase that a lot of folks have wrestled with, especially when you compare it or read it in, in kind of this progression of he was in the nature of God. And so the inevitable kind of almost obvious question is, okay, well, what did he empty himself of, right? Because if he was God 
and he takes on servanthood in the flesh, then what did he set aside? And so people come up with all sorts of theories and interpretations, right? He set aside his glory. He emptied himself of his divine attributes of omniscience and omnipresence and uh, all those different things that comes with being God. He set aside his majesty. He emptied himself of those things in order that he could become a servant. Now, those are worth at least considering, but I don't think you can say any of those things definitively just by this text alone. It's not in there. And you don't really have to. Because when you look at the way that the word for himself is placed in the text, it's very emphatic. And when you look at the verb, it doesn't require another object to point to. It can be pointing just to himself. What I mean is this. Right? Another way to translate this is not to assume that he emptied himself of something. It's just that he poured himself out. He gave everything that he was to you. And that harmonizes with what you see in verses one through four, right? It resonates with what we talked about last week and his very essence and nature is to give of himself rather than try to take for his own advantage. God poured himself out. And this is the message of Christmas. This is the miracle of the incarnation. This is why we come to the manger scene in awe and marvel and learn from it year after year after year is because we see that we have a God who is willing to pour himself out to the point that he would take on the nature of servanthood and embrace all the weaknesses and frailty of humankind so that he could say, I understand and I know and I love you. That is the extent to which he goes to show you his love. To what extent will you go to show him yours? Because I assure you that love will only flourish when it's reciprocal. <laughs> so is it one-sided? Or are you going to great lengths to show that love to him? I, I wanna wrap this up with kind of an illustration that I think brings this to light. Uh, if you've listened to me preach at all, you know that I'm a fan of illustrations. I think it's an important part of teaching uh, for a couple different reasons, because illustrations help bring clarity a lot of times. Um, they're more memorable, and hopefully you can kind of hang on to some of those stories and remember what they were trying to achieve and teach. And, and a lot of times it helps us take what we're hearing here and maybe feel it a little bit more here. And so I, I put a lot of time and attention and effort into trying to think of what illustrations bring those things to light when I can. And as I was looking at this passage, there was one particular story, one particular memory that, that kind of kept coming to mind uh, that I thought would work. But I was conflicted when I started thinking about it, um, just to be honest with you. And, and part of the conflict is because it's a story about my dad. And you all know, uh, many of you know, that I lost my dad to COVID earlier this year, uh, January of this year. And so I've, I've tried to navigate that as best as I can. And, and there have been numerous times in this past year where I've obviously thought of a story of my dad and I haven't shared it with you because, as I think I've told you, I don't want to like always bring that up. I don't want to be the depressing pastor. You know what I mean? And so I've tried to be careful with that. And yet at the same time, I know that grief is not something we often talk about. And so I've chosen other moments to share some of those stories in hopes that maybe just pulling the curtain back a little bit on grief 
is encouraging or insightful, and it gives all of us a chance to recognize what God can do with it. And so this story, um, I felt applied, and I felt that conflict, but I decided to go ahead and share it with you, not really so much because of the grief thing and not wanting to risk, you know, always bringing that aspect up that's been very difficult this past year, but because I really do believe this story helps bring clarity to what I'm trying to share from this passage. So the other reason for that, though, is because we're entering into uh, the season where he got sick, and so so many of those memories are just right at the surface for me. And so uh, it was from that season uh, that this story emerges. My my dad um, obviously was diagnosed with COVID right after Christmas last year, and one of the most difficult aspects to that whole process is the isolation. And many of y'all are aware of that. You've either heard it, you've personally experienced it, but when somebody obviously, especially at that point in time, pre-vaccine, and uh, we were at the peak of the pandemic, you just couldn't, I mean, you couldn't see them. And that was easily the most difficult part of the journey, um, not being able to be there. Because when you see your loved one sick, that's, that's everything within you. That's what you want to do. And so we were trying to figure out what's the best way uh, to, to let him know that we're thinking about him, that we love him, that we're praying for him. And so on the front end of, of that, we started with text messages. That was kind of our first attempt. And, and we started there because we knew that he was coughing a lot. It was hard to breathe, and, and conversations weren't always easy. Um, and so we started with text messages. And those first few days, that's kind of what we relied upon, only to discover that those weren't really effective either because some of the equipment he was having to wear with the BiPAP machine, he couldn't keep his glasses on, and so he couldn't always see his text, um, couldn't always see what he was texting back, so it was less reliable, so we're like, okay, well, let's think of another, another way to let him know. Um, so we started FaceTiming, and, and that was better, uh, but still limited, as you can imagine. Um, a lot of noise from the machinery, hard to understand, but at least we could see him, talk to him a little bit. And so that's kind of what we relied on for the next couple of days. But reality was, is that no matter what we were trying, um, you couldn't escape this overwhelming feeling of just helplessness. I think that best describes how my sister and I felt. We just felt helpless. Um, so we were talking to each other one day. We were like, let's just go. Let's just go to Abilene. We know we can't get in the hospital, but let's just go. Let's just be there. And so we did. I mean, we, we got in the car one Friday. Um, grabbed some notes from the kids, the grandkids, made a poster, pictures of him and us and the grandkids from all different seasons and wrote encouraging scriptures on it, went and got balloons. And we took it to the hospital and, um, you know, we knew we couldn't go up to his room, but we dropped it off at the reception. And then we were in the parking lot and we called him, both of us, and we're like, we're here. I mean, I know we're not there, but like we're here, Dad. We're in the park. We're here with you because we love you. <laughs> that was the best we could do. And we were willing to go to that extent, doing everything we could to let him know that we loved him because we knew that for the most of his life, he had done everything he could to show his love to us. It was reciprocal, it was beautiful. And that, to me, makes me think of our God. He looks in on us, and he sees we're sick. 
sees we're hurting. And he tries all these different ways to let us know that he loves us. He sends word through miracles and creation. He sends word through prophets. He writes it down. He does everything he can. And then finally he says, you know what, I'm just going to go. And he's made in human likeness. And he takes on the nature of a servant. And he empties himself, pours himself out. The word becomes flesh. And at the birth of this Jesus, it's a declaration for all the world to hear that says, I'm here because I love you. That's the links to which he goes to show you his love. So how far will we go to show him ours? I assure you, if you give your heart to this love, if you let your life be shaped by it, doesn't matter what you find in your family, doesn't matter what you find in your career, your wealth, none of that matters, no matter what season you're in, you will discover the richest and deepest, most profound love your heart could ever know. And you'll discover over and over, his love is enough. What that means is that where you are right now, you will never be loved more than this very moment. Nothing you can do, doesn't matter the season, doesn't matter the situation, his love is enough. Will you give your love to him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the links to which you go to show that love to us. Father, forgive us of the moments that we allow our hearts to be pulled in other directions, that we settle for cheaper sense of meaning for a less understanding of fulfillment and love. Call us back home, God, and allow our hearts to rest in your hands. Let us come to this manger scene, this Christmas season, and no matter what it is that we carry, no matter what it is that we have, Father, we bring it to you, and we say thank you for pouring yourself out for us, Help us to commit this morning to pour ourselves out for you. Help us to know, Father, the depths of that love. I just pray that if there's anyone here this morning that questions it, that feels unworthy of it, anyone that comes in here with a season of confusion, disillusionment, guilt, or shame, let them know, Father, that they'll never be more loved than they are in this moment and that your love is enough. We thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.